Reformation Fellowship provides support and fellowship to all who would stand for the Reformation of Christ's Church worldwide. We long to see the church revitalized by the gospel and seek to encourage all who share that vision. We gather together for gospel-hearted fellowship around gospel-minded theology. We are a ministry of union. Greetings, friends. My name is Justin Shell, and I am your host here for the Reformation Fellowship podcast. Welcome back to those who have been with us previously, and we want to especially welcome any first-time listeners uh, as we gather around the great truths of God and seek to encourage one another in the work of the gospel. I want to make you aware of our website, reffellowship.org, R-E-F-fellowship.org. That's where you can find out more about what we are all about here at the Reformation Fellowship, and we can keep you updated on news about events, resources, the gatherings, etc. This is the second in a three-part conversation about God's Word. We spoke last episode about the biblical languages and their use for God's people. Next week, we will look at biblical theology, but today's conversation will cover some major ground on the area of doctrine of scripture and hermeneutics. We, we really want to focus in on the ministry of the word in the church and how these things impact and inform that. I want to welcome back our two guests, Stephen Jenkins, lecturer in Greek and biblical studies for Union School of Theology, and Stephen Moore, lecturer in Hebrew and Old Testament there at Union School of Theology. If you'd like to hear a little more of who they are, their background, their studies, you can listen to uh, the previous episode to, to hear that as well. Thank you, brothers, for being here again. Really appreciate you. I so enjoyed our last conversation, and I'm excited to be with you for this one as well. Hey, it's good to be here. Thank you for having us back. Great to be with you, Justin. Mm. Well, let's, uh, let's jump in because these are big topics. <laughs> these are big issues, and maybe um, maybe you can set the landscape for us. Uh, when we think of these, uh, these topics of the doctrine of scripture, hermeneutics, um, maybe you, you can throw in exegesis there. These are all um, words that we may or may not be familiar with. So what are they and how are they different? How are they related? Sure, thank you. Well, I think firstly, I'd want to say the, these are, of course, important topics uh, to think about. And, uh, you know, if you're if you're a systematic theologian, it's very important that you formulate a good doctrine of Scripture. That is to say what the Bible is, as well as what it isn't, that you help us to guard against error and so on. Um, but I think for most of us, we probably um, know that proverb that more is caught than taught. So without even knowing what the word hermeneutics is, or even exegesis, we, we have picked up uh, a view of scripture uh, just from hearing our pastor preach. Uh, and I think, you know, when, when I teach Old Testament in first year, I don't think I use these words once, but I think my students are picking up a very clear sense of what I think about who God is and, and what the Bible is. So I'd slightly want to point us away from dividing these things, dividing what we think about scripture, what we think about hermeneutics, what we think about exegesis, and, and slightly be comfortable to, to get on and, and read our Bibles. 
and not think too much about a, a professional method. Um, here's why, because I think the most important thing about the doctrine of scripture is, is, is that simple statement that, that when, God, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Mm. Uh, the Bible is God's own words. The Bible is the written word about the enfleshed word, the son of God uh, who came and made his tabernacle among us. And if we start to uh, then say, okay, hermeneutics, this is supposed to be, how do I understand it? Which immediately problematizes something which mm. the Bible says is not a problem. The mm. Bible presents God as, do I not have a mouth? Um, it should not be a problem to, uh, to understand. Hermeneutics is about, okay, how do we apply? But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God is eternal. God is as fresh this morning as when Paul wrote the first epistle to the Corinthians. The fact that God spoke to Ruth, expecting it to be relevant, means that I, who share Ruth's flesh and blood, as does Jesus, now sitting on the throne, I can expect it to have an application to me. And I don't want to make a problem of it. Mm. As if there's some ancient meaning back there, and then I've got to invent tricks to, right. to use it for some uh, use for me, uh, for me here. And I think the same with, with exegesis. Um, God didn't write in a mysterious code, which we have got to decipher. Mm. Do you see what I mean? And I, th I think we can sometimes give the impression that um, the professional exegete is the one who has spent four years learning 50 techniques mm. for how to understand a passage, how to apply a passage, how to think. And, I, and actually, no, what, what we've done is we've immersed ourselves in the word and, and we want to stand before you confidently that, that God is speaking to you. And, and, that it, and that there is an obviousness and a relevance to the oracles of God, because this is how Jesus has chosen by his spirit to join himself to his people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the, there's heuristic value in, in, in separating these, these aspects of, of different theological disciplines out, but the, the, the caught not taught point that you were mentioning is, is really important for who we're listening to and what we're doing every time we uh, encounter scripture and then unfold scripture is it's, it's a holistic thing. And so uh, to be aware that uh, when somebody's teaching and somebody's preaching that actually all these things are informing what's being said. So the doctrine of scripture is, is guiding uh, what somebody's interpretation is. It's, um, it's an holistic exercise so that we might want to be self-conscious at certain points in a process to speak about particular steps, but not to think by that, that there's a technique or a process by which we reach um, a certain interpretation, or there's a 10-step process to uh, understanding what this passage says um, or how it should be applied. And in particular, once, once these become free-floating disciplines, um, rather than just how we sometimes are self-conscious about uh, approaching the, the, the task of interpreting scripture or encountering scripture. And then they develop lives of their own independent of each other. And so if, if there's a hermeneutics without a firmly grounded doctrine of scripture governed by what as Stephen says scripture is and what it isn't, then uh, it's free to go off in a completely different direction. And um, so 
I, I think uh, holding them together and expecting that each of us, uh, including those we're listening to, um, are speaking informed by doctrine of scripture. So what somebody says about the exegesis of this passage, um, whatever somebody might say, it is informed by their doctrine of scripture and it's guided by that. And so uh, these, these aren't separate enterprises. And you know, it, I mean, in some ways there's there's truth in that for, for all sorts of theological disciplines um, mm. that we're, we're prone to divide for pragmatic reasons. Um, but that um, it must find their end, their goal, um, and, and their occupation ultimately, and um, you know, in, in God and the worship of God um, and the glorification of God. So, yeah, I think um, uh, in the end, we're, we're dealing with a holistic um, enterprise. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So now, now that we've we've kind of sorted. Uh, or situated those in in our minds and hopefully um for, for me for listeners maybe even sorting them much more closely and seeing their 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 relationship their their connection with each other i want to look at the church for a moment we're hearing more and more um certainly this has been stated in academic places um, and works, but even within the church and maybe popular level um, pieces that that's the study of scripture, interpretation of scripture needs to be returned back to the church. What does what does that mean? Well, there may, there may be different currents flowing um, behind that, but I, I think at least one is that the the sense or the feeling perhaps um, in, in this and I mean, it's not peculiar to this generation, but that the church has perhaps been ill-served by uh, academic interpretations of scripture that have nevertheless had a, a disproportionate impact on how the church through um, academic institutions, through um, pastoral training, uh, through all sorts of channels and, and publication of, of books and you know, domination of scholarly literature, has nevertheless had that impact on uh, the church's understanding of um, of God's word of Scripture, and so uh, as a um, as a reaction to that, to think well, um, uh, given that uh, that dynamic, then what in the church to um, to be interpreting Scripture, um, and I mean at the heart of that, there's a very important truth, of course, which is that that that's exactly right. Mother Mother Kirk is the uh, mm. You know, it's on the skirts of Mother Kirk that we are, um, you know, we are all holding on to, being educated, being raised. It's the church is the school of Christ in which um, the Spirit is at work, uh, uh, opening eyes, opening our eyes to Scripture and uh, the riches of Scripture. And so, um, that's that's very appropriate the context in which the Spirit sanctifying His people. Um, I think actually, I mean, something we've talked about in a, a previous episode actually has at the level of the individual pastor in training, for example, thinking about studies they'll undertake. And we talked in particular about biblical languages, but um, with it, you know, as we think about this question, this is where we get to pan back a little bit and think not just about the individual in question, but what about a whole generation of pastors in training and the choices that they make? And if there's a pattern and uh, a decision that on the whole, they say, there'd be an increasing trend of for pastors not to to take the biblical languages and and to continue in that vein 
And then if you extrapolate forward and say, well, what does that actually do? Well, that means that there's a, there's a whole generation of church pastors and, and leaders uh, with all the influence that means on congregations and Christian witness that, um, that has to lean on the academy in uh, you know, a, a pretty heavy way. So uh, the academy continues to be, in that sense, a, a something that must inform the understanding, for example, of um, interpretive questions because actually there's, there's less competence um, in general terms um, in a generation um, in, in um, dealing with the, the biblical languages. That's, that's a generalization and that's, a, that's obviously a, a gross simplification, but just that um, the, the decisions and the questions that we, that we make in terms of what we encourage pastors in training to do is actually really important and strategic and significant. Mm. This whole question then down the line of uh, the dynamic between between church and academy. But in saying that the the church is the it's absolutely right. Mother Kirk is the the educative context in which um, um, you know Christians are nurtured and, and encouraged and built up. It's not an anti intellectualist stance, and so. It's not a retreat and a lack of ambition for what the theology and teaching of the Church Catholic um, can do in the context in which it can thrive. So we can think of, um, you know, just a few um, hundred years ago with the, the generations that followed the first reformers, the reformed Orthodox, that as they began to systematize, and the, the reformed faith and the adjustments um, and the, the changes that had um, taken place um, in reformed doctrine, as those were codified and systematized, their, their purpose and their plan in doing that was a really uh, ambitious one. It was, it was a firm belief that this is the, um, the faith once and for all entrusted to the saints. And because of that, it deserved, therefore, to um, be taught uh, widespread. It, it deserved to have the place of being the queen of all disciplines, the public and teaching of the, the faith of the church Catholic. And so that kind of uh, ambition and expectation that um, you know, the church's teaching um, can, uh, uh, can, can hold sway um, and, and is robust is the kind of ambition that's, it's, it's not a retreat from the academy. It's not a, um, uh, an anti-intellectual stance. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I think, I think, I think it's very well put, Stephen. Um, I wonder whether I could explore it from a slightly different angle of thinking. What, um, when people might sometimes say, well, if you're going to be a seminary uh, lecturer or in transatlantic vernacular, a seminary professor, by the way, over here, professor means something. It's only over uh, Lethams and Reeves' doors uh, here. The rest of us are mere lecturers. But um, people will sometimes say, well, if you're going to do that, you need to have been a pastor. And I want to very strongly disagree with that. And I want to say you are continuing to be a pastor. And I, and I don't mean that you are bivocational, that you've got a congregation somewhere whom you serve, but rather I mean that um, I'm not expecting the ecclesiology of all of our listeners to be willing to, to accept this, but just as an example, you know, in, in the 17th century, when, when the Puritans wrote down their confessions and they articulated for the reformed Church of England as they hoped it would be, um, what are the different offices? And they talked about uh, a, a ruling elder who, who governs a congregation uh, along with ministers who 
rule the congregation and do the day-to-day -day work of teaching the word and administering the sacraments, but they also have the category of doctor, which is just Latin for teacher, who they envisage being a fully trained and qualified and equipped minister who spent most of his time training others in the word. And they even wrote down, these are especially useful in the universities. Mm. So when we read about Puritans like John Owen, we need to remember that his day job was to run Oxford University when Cromwell had the freedom to give him to do that. So, so I think what I'm trying to get at in that very roundabout way is that we're not pragmatically borrowing a secular model of education from the academy in order to use it in seminaries. I think rather that what we're seeing in secular education is a corruption from a Christian discipleship model that has been lost. Mm. We need to put it back at the center of seminary life so that when students come here, know the seminary is not your church, know your lecturer is not the elder of your local church or your pastor, uh, but nonetheless, he is there because even if in some ill-defined sense, we're not one denomination or anything like it, the church, if I can put it that way, has entrusted you to him uh, to disciple you. And, and the way that he handles you in the classroom and over coffee needs to be seen as Christian discipleship, mm. which might be focused on um, knowledge and intellectual pursuits in a way that it wouldn't be so focused in the rest of your life. But that is what is going on. It, it, it is not a transfer of information or a puffing up of the mind. Mm -hmm. it, it is a specialized training within the body, done by the body and for the body. Yeah, yeah so it, it sounds like you could, uh, in a sense, this um, biblical interpretation going back to the church is, is both a challenge to the church to not outsource this to not um, check their minds at the door and let someone someone at a, at a school somewhere do the thinking for them um, that they are they are meant to be uh, pressing into the deep things of God and on the academy side that um, the challenge is are we really serving the church are we really do we see ourselves as as those who or, who are ordained by the church who are sent out by the church to do this work for the church. What about then on the local church side of things, as we, as we think about scripture ministry, word ministry, what are some ways pastors might uh, do damage to our own ministries through poor handling of the word, or, or maybe it's a faulty doctrine of scripture or approach to hermeneutics? I'm sitting here, I think I'm seeing it in Stephen's face, thinking, who are we to um, issue these declarations? But, um, but I know what you mean. Uh, you're, you're, you're trying to say, you know, how do we, how do we steer people to, to green grass? Yeah. Um, and, you know, hey, the New Testament gives us all the warnings we need, doesn't it? And, and, and if you run out there, you can go to Jeremiah and the rest of the Old Testament. We, we know what the warnings are. But I think already, once we start talking about poor handling of the word, you know, that's a fine phrase, you know, Paul, Paul uses it, but it can conjure in people's mind a professionalism and a task-driven approach to this object called the word, rather than trembling before the word of the almighty God. This is the one whom I esteem, mm. he says Isaiah. And um, so I, th I think already once we, once we stray into thinking... I know the techniques, I know the tricks. 
you know, we, we spot them with delivery, don't we? I mean, the, the, the guy who thunders at you for 20 minutes and then goes really quiet and slow, you know he's an emotional manipulator and you've already, you've already tuned out. But, but there's an equivalent of that in the study, in your preparation, where you say, um, I know I'm going to get people to listen. I know I'm going to put emphasis in. I, I know what to look for in the text. And, and really, it's detached. You, you could teach that to an unbeliever. Mm. And they do it well. And we all know of anecdotes of, you know, unbelievers have been converted by their own sermons in the pulpit. Steve and I both used to work at different times at the building of Haslam's. Um, the, the famous vicar who in the middle of a sermon on John 3.16 converted himself. So I think that is that, is that danger of, of being task-driven, of not thinking I am, I am a minister of God's word to serve the people. And my first duty is to listen to the word of God, to let Jesus feed me, to, to drink from overflowing systems mm. and a blessing not to show up on Sunday and sort of almost like saying to to a hundred board members, see, I've earned my salary this week. Look, look what wonderful exegesis I have wrought for your benefit. Mm. I think I think that would be one thing that, that mm. I want to keep reminding mm. myself of. In fact, there, there was a page of an, an old Dutch book. I don't, unlike this man here, I don't know any Dutch, but I used to, I got in the habit of reading it every Sunday because he, he just had a page on how, how to climb the steps of the pulpit uh, and, and your audience of one. And, and, and he has been with you in your study all that week. He knows whether you've been trying to get away with professionalism and technique or whether you've been listening to him, mm. and being changed by his voice and wanting to be more like him mm. uh, and enjoy his son. So I think that would be one thing. Uh, be, be a disciple, but that's got to be it in the pulpit. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, kind of like we were saying earlier about the place of the wider church, you know, if, if Paul can say to the Corinthians, if anyone wants to be fussy about this, no other church does it any other way than what I've just said, I think we could, we could do with a little more of that. And I, I'm not trying to say that congregationalism is, is wrong. I mean, of course it is wrong, but that's not what I'm trying to say in this podcast. But I'm not trying to argue against independency, but, but, but there can be an isolationism where you teach your people, I am the expert Bible handler and I alone am the decider of the bounds of orthodoxy. And you can produce Christians who, when work takes them to another town, believe that every church within 200 miles is heretical because they have a slightly different view of worship. Or, or a slightly different view of, of anything else. And, and they don't have the sense that my pastor was representing Christ, not a sect. My pastor was, yes, had his own particular convictions within our narrower tradition, but actually what he stood for was the one true church, mm. which, which has her boundaries set by Christ and the word, mm. not by every decision that my pastor took when the whim took him in the pulpit. Mm. Yeah, and 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 on that, the it, it's not an automatic safeguard, but the, uh, the 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 priority or the the main diet of expository preaching in a church, where it's not uh, every decision isn't governed by uh, the minister or the preacher as to exactly what's going to be said on that week, and you know, with 
when you're under a true expository diet that there's great variety. So you're hearing something different or ought to be every week. And that's both for the, the pastor and the congregation, uh, a really important guard against lopsidedness and, and being prey to the, to the whims of, of, uh, of the pastor. So um, it's, it's a, uh, I think it's been, I think it's really fruitfully described. My friend Christopher Ash talked about how it's uh, giving God the microphone. I don't think it's his phrase, mm-hmm. but he, he's mm-hmm. giving God the microphone, the idea that they, the agenda is being set ultimately by, by the word. My next question, you're actually, I think, moving us, moving us that way already. It's not technique. <laughs> uh, it's not, um, it's not having the right, all the right tools in your tool belt. There is an, in, in the proclamation of the word of God, um, a that uh, is is central is is key for the 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 pastor the preacher. How would you encourage if I'm a, I'm a pastor and and I I want to help myself but also my people? Uh, I want to help them learn to delight in God's word. It seems like prayer. And Bible reading, there's a lot of Christians um, that you encounter who those things are hard. Um, for me, sometimes they're hard. <laughs> um, when I'm not in, when I'm, uh, I can find myself thinking of them as a burden. And help, help me, help pastors, help us think about how, um, how we can delight in God's word. Yeah. Well, I think we all have the radar of, um, what, what, at the moment, we're either telling somebody or being told, you know, you must delight in God, that yeah. um, that, <laughs> that, that, that can't be it. And that's uh, not the usual um, producer of delight. But so essentially, how, how, do we, how do we delight in God's word? We know ourselves that it's, it's when we encounter God, when we meet Christ mm. himself in the scriptures, so that uh, we... Um, we just we, we know that to be true and so then the, the the question has become how it becomes how does that happen um, and i think uh i mean that's in many ways that's a it's a great question it's a huge question i do think part of it is probably um what we we talked about a moment ago about um uh god setting the the agenda so that it's it's god speaking uh, now that doesn't mean that it's not the Lord speaking through uh, His human instruments and speaking through all uh, of what He and His providence has done to form um, us as a uh, as a preacher, as um, a minister of the Word. But uh, it does mean that people are uh, are encountering Christ through through His Word when uh, there's consecutively in a sustained way we are hearing God speak as he's spoken through the scriptures and so I think that the the delight uh, I think comes when of course it's God who's speaking and how do we preserve as best we can that that taking place I think an important safeguard is that mm-hmm. uh, we're not deciding what's going to be said this Sunday we're together sitting under the mm-hmm. words we're sitting under it first as um, as, as the preacher um, and I think in a, where there's an ex, you know in an expository setting, it's consecutive preaching. It's what comes next in God's word is what he's going to have to say to us um, this Lord's day. 
Mm. Mm. That is um, that is his heart, isn't it? Uh, that we would encounter him in the Word. I think uh, uh, John five. You search the Scriptures because you think in them, in them by themselves, just this text over here that they have life, but they're meant to lead you to me. That you'd come to me to have life. Um, but you but you refuse to come to me. And so I think that um, that's central, isn't it? He he wants to do business with his church. His desires, we encounter him in his word. Uh, so good. Such a good reminder. Um, that's his heart. Um, well, before I let you go, uh, let's finish with some recommendations. Um when you think of these these topics, and you can go doctrine of scripture, hermeneutics, exegesis, you can go encountering Jesus in the Word. Uh, what are some books or other resources you might recommend on these things for the pastor, or perhaps uh, for the engaged church leader, lay leader, uh, or just someone wants to go deeper? So, um, a couple of things that might be helpful: uh, the the union conference that we had three Septembers ago, all the talks for that are online and they were uh, on the general theme of Reformation. It was, it was that year. And, and, and there were some things there, particularly on, on preaching and on doctrine of scripture. And, and they might be helpful, you know, for someone on a car journey who doesn't want to have a book in front of their nose on the steering wheel. Things to read. Um, Kevin Van Hooser, his book, uh, authority after Babel is particularly focusing on on those five Reformation solas and what a difference they make to Scripture, and and really helping us with that in the first chapter on that question of what does it mean for mm. Scripture to be sufficient but not to be alone mm. by itself. So that that, that would be uh, quite heavy. Uh, a lighter read, but I think I'm finding it incredibly helpful. So much so that I'm rationing myself to a couple of pages a day because I I don't want it to sail by me is Alan and Swain, Reformed Catholicity. Mm. And really they're they addressing that question, that they're addressing it through the lens of how does the Holy Spirit form the school of Christ? And I've just realized that every page is teaching me more about the work of the Spirit than the last 10 years of thinking or reading mm. uh, about anything else. They've got mm. some really arresting phrases. So, the final one for me, it, no, I'm, I'm loving it. In fact, I, I know that somebody sitting next to me heard me rant about it and bought his own copy. Whether he's read it yet, I don't know. I, I haven't finished it. <laughs> but it, as a model of how the academy could serve the church, um, this is going to sound terribly pretentious. It's an old book, um, Wilhelmus Arbrackel, uh, The Christian's uh, Reasonable Service, recently translated. Now, here is, that's the book I was telling you about, where I had a page of it photocopied before every Sunday how you walk up the pulpit. But it has a section on regeneration and it's a systematic theology as you would expect. At the end of that section, three pages on what to do if you're reading this and you're not regenerate. Now imagine what somebody who writes like that does to you when he's explaining the doctrine of the Trinity to you. Mm. Imagine how helpful and edifying it is to have somebody with that very strong academic training who knows his stuff, Dutch reformed guy who must have, you know, signed every syllable of, it, of the three forms of unity before he could be a pastor, but he brings it home like that. And, and that is what I would love to see more of mm. um, out, of, out of seminaries. 
uh, is not here's this academic stuff uh, and, and now off you go in church, but actually let me model to you how to bring the highest possible standards of academic depth to the life of, of babes. Mm. Yeah. It was sound great. I would, uh, I, I would echo Stefan's point on uh, reformed Catholicity. So Alan and Swain, they, in particular, we've just been speaking about the pastor in scripture. And one of the things that's, that is useful and helpful is, well, then where does, um, how do we understand properly um, tradition? What, what then is it? Um, how can we locate it and, and frame it and understand it? Uh, and, it's, I think it's very, it's very instructive on that because we know that we're not opening up our Bible and we're not the first ones to do so in mm. 2,000 years and we shouldn't pretend that as we go about interpreting and applying and preaching scripture that, that we're doing so for the first time. Well, brothers, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, such crucial, important topics here. I know uh, we've only scratched the surface on, uh, on, on, on bits of it, but um, maybe we'll just have to schedule some future conversations to go deeper. Uh, To our listeners, our time is up, and we thank you for joining us and the Reformation Fellowship. We would love to stay in touch with you. The best way to do that would be to head over to reffellowship.org. That is R-E-F fellowship.org. Sign up for our newsletter. We'll be able to keep you updated on upcoming events, upcoming resources, upcoming gatherings, etc. Thank you again for joining us here on the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. God bless.